0: Good morning, church. In case you don't know me, my name's Rob. I'm the senior pastor here. And uh, it was just an encouraging time to go as a church family and be representatives, ambassadors, on behalf of those who are struggling with housing here on the Cape. I wanted to read just a, a brief letter or some brief words from Lynn Rohr um, from Hack. She said this, Um, Endless thanks to our top team fundraiser, Osterville Baptist Church, for raising $10,470. Good job, guys. Incredible. She said, on event day, we were blown away when a school bus arrived filled with walkers from the OVC team. I believe we had over 50 OVCers. Their passion for making a difference in the housing crisis is evident by their efforts. Lynn will be joining us on June 19th just to come in and extend a word of gratitude to the church. I wanted to read this to you from Timothy Keller, his book, Ministries of Mercy. The the subheading of what I'm about to read is this, the grand apologetic. Keller says, mercy has an impact. It melts hearts. It removes objections. It forces respect out of even those hostile to the gospel. Our good deeds glorify God in the eyes of the world. Matthew 5:16. Our concrete deeds of love for one another are an apologetic for the validity of the Christian faith. John 13:35 says, "By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love me." One another, The ministry of mercy within the Christian community is perhaps the most startling, invisible display of our love for one another. So good job, church. I, I, I say it like this. The ministry of mercy is like throwing paint on the invisible man. People hear about Christ, but they don't see Christ. But when they see the body of Christ living and active, they do see Christ. Let's open our Bibles. We're continuing along in our series, The Making of a Leader. We're in 1 Samuel, chapter 26. 1 Samuel 26. And here in this section of the text, once again, we're covering a very similar theme. I'm reminded of Peter as I was thinking of this text. Now, Peter is known, for better or worse, as the disciple who tends to put his foot in his mouth. And while there might be some validity to the generalization, I have to say, I feel a little offended when people say that of Peter because I can hear myself asking some of the questions he asks and saying some of the statements. Uh, Look at this question that he asked of Jesus in Matthew 18. He said, Lord, How often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Now, let me restate that a little bit. Lord, how often must I forgive, and I'm going to call them a repeat offender? Now, I don't think that's a dim question. I think that's a very logical sort of question. How often, Jesus, must I remain open to the possibility of forgiveness? How often should I remain open to the possibility of remaining in relationship with someone? We have a saying around this, don't we? Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on who? Me. You know, even two-year-olds get this, right? They touch a hot stove, they don't repeat that again after doing it the first time. But what does God's word have to say about this? What kind of framework do we live by as the people of God? Remember, we're coming back to this enemy dynamic again and again and again in 1 Samuel. And it's because God is not interested in you simply passing a test one time. No, God wants mastery within your character. He wants you to look like Jesus. So as we open up his word this morning, we're going to see David yet again confronted with his ultimate enemy, a repeat offender, King Saul. Let's pick up in verse 1. The text says, Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding himself on the hill of Hakala, which is on the east of Jeshimon? Now, a couple of just background pieces here. The Ziphites have already done this to david a time prior and for samuel 23 they gave saul his location this time david is in Jeshimon, which means wasteland so he's still on the run he's still fleeing he's still separated from the comforts of normalcy and human community and we have to ask the question why david Why are you running? I mean, didn't Saul say in 1 Samuel 24 that he wasn't going to be hounding you any longer? So why go into this wasteland? I have to tell you, after the second time that someone tries to throw a spear at me and kill me, I'm a little suspicious of that person. That's just kind of how it works for me. Look at David's journey so far. I have a map up here. It's a little small, I know, but you can see the track that he's been on as he's been fleeing from Saul. It looks a little bit like spaghetti noodles. It's been chaotic. He's running all through the promised land. He's run outside of the promised land. David has been the rabbit. Saul has been the fox. And his suspicions prove accurate once again, because as we head into verse 2, Saul doesn't even hesitate. So Saul rose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph with 3,000 chosen men, meaning the best of the best of Israel, to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. Verse 3, And Saul encamped on the hill of Hakala, which is beside the road on the east of Jeshimon. But David remained in the wilderness. When he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness, David sent out spies and learned that Saul had indeed come. Then David rose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. And David saw the place where he lay, where Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of the army, Saul was lying within the encampment while the army was encamped around him. And he comes up with this stealthy plot in verse 6. So David said to Ahimelech the Hittite and to Joab's brother, Abishai, the son of Zuruai, who will go down with me into the camp to Saul? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai went to the army by night and there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment with his spear stuck in the ground at his head and Abner, the army, lay around him. Then Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear and I will not strike him twice." Let's camp out here for just a minute. Okay, we are right now at the main point of tension in this story. Do you say yes to Abishai? Do you say no? Now, I want to ask a question of the Bible. What is it doing right now? You know, it's interesting. You go back to chapter 24, then you look at chapter 26. In chapter 24, you have David in the cave. In chapter 26, he's David in the camp. He has the same choice before him two times. Now, some scholars look at this, and they suggest that, you know, the biblical editor or whoever wrote this book of 1 Samuel, they just simply weren't careful enough. They got confused about the details. David only actually ever spared Saul's life one time, and it, whether it was a cave or a camp, they just kind of put them both in there. Now, does that seem to make any sense to you? It doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, how, how stupid would someone have to be to forget that they wrote a story just one chapter or two chapters prior No, this seems to me to be very intentional. It's the same story. We come back to it a second time. In the cave, David spares Saul's life with the effect that Saul seems to renounce his hostility towards David. But now in the camp, David knows that Saul isn't going to change. He extended mercy, and Saul trampled upon it. Now, let's take our imagination for a moment. I call it the sanctified imagination. When we're reading the scriptures, it doesn't tell us David's emotional state. But for a minute, let's just think about what emotion must, be, must David be experiencing right now. And I want to suggest that it is the emotion of rage, rage. Now remember, anger is the God-created response to unjust treatment. It doesn't get more unjust than this. Saul sleeping on the ground, Saul surrounded by a 3,000-person killing squad, it must have been like gasoline upon the fire. And maybe you can relate to this. Maybe you have your own repeat offender in your world now it's really difficult to deny the fact that when you have a repeat offender that you don't get struck by some emotions maybe the emotion of fear maybe the emotion of anxiety in their presence but normally boiling underneath the surface is rage a rage that's like an unquenchable fire a rage that actually makes you feel powerful. You feel powerful because the person made you feel helpless, but this, this is something that you can hold on to. So how do godly people navigate these feelings? Well, we're going to watch David, and he provides us with a godly model for dealing yet again with a repeat offender and we can actually pull principles from the way that he deals with Saul in this chapter. So let's take a look at the next part of the text and we'll just start making our way through these principles. It says in verse nine, David said to Abishai, do not destroy him for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But take now the spear that is at his head in the jar of water and let us go. So David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head, and they went away. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake. For they were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. So let's take our first principle here from this dialogue. And I would suggest it is this the number of offenses does not change the underlying truth. So I'm going to ask you a couple of questions and. I'm the kind of preacher that expects you to talk back to me, okay? So let's just get that clear this morning. So here's my first question for you. Did the truth change between chapter 24 and now here at chapter 26? Did the truth change? No. Okay, the situation might be different, but the truth didn't change. Does the truth change after someone has offended you? What about a second time? Third? I think you're getting my point here. Does the truth ever change? If you believe in the God of the Bible, if you believe that he's the divine lawgiver if you believe that his truth is absolute truth, then you must come to the realization that the truth, no matter the situation, never changes. Now look at what David says in verse 10. He speaks the truth plainly. As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. So, the bottom line for vengeance is this, when, how, for what reason. All of those things when it comes to vengeance is God's choice, not mine. And didn't David learn about this recently? Remember his interaction with Nabal, that was God's classroom for him. I call it Nabal Relations 101. And it was in that class that God used Abigail to teach David about restraint. Now, what is restraint? Well, restraint is the choice to keep power under control. So, David has 400 men, and he can easily go into Nabal's camp and wipe them all out. But he chooses, after hearing the speech, to exercise restraint. And he's making the same choice now again here in the camp. Here's what I believe about restraint your ability to restrain yourself will always proceed from how you answer this question Do I trust? God to deal with the person who has hurt me? Do you trust him? And underneath that is another question that's the foundation of it all. Is he truly God? Is he in control? If your answer to that question is yes, then you will exercise restraint. If your answer to the question is no, then you say, Abishai, go ahead and thrust the spear. Because after all, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. And I think the theological problem when we don't exercise restraint, it stems from a lack of confidence in God. We're essentially giving our enemies far too much credit and God far too little credit. Your enemy can feel imposing to you. Think about Saul, he's surrounded by 3,000 of Israel's finest. That is raw power in this world. When you think about raw power, he has men at his command, and he can say, go and kill. And you know what they do? They go and kill. But then scripture, it pulls back the veil. Look at verse 12. No man saw it, knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep, because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. Saul looks massive. He looks strong, but the Bible says he's defenseless. The point is this, don't give your enemies any more credit than they deserve. When you do that, you're holding an outsized view of, of people. I want you to take your Bible and just turn to Psalm 73. As you look at this Psalm, you're going to see that Asaph tells us that he almost stumbled in his walk with God because he had developed an outsized view of people. Look what he says in verse 2. He says, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. And if you've never gone through this thought process, you haven't thought deeply about the world. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Now, here's a big question. Is he right about that? Is he? I mean, do enemies really experience a life free from pain and only ever experience prosperity? Well, it feels like that sometimes, doesn't it? Of course it can. We get into our own little headspace and we start forgetting about everything and and we attribute way too much power to them. But I'll tell you, God has proven himself 100% of the time that no matter how wicked someone is, how powerful the person is, everyone dies at the end of their life. 100%. 100 So what do you do to reorient your thinking? Well, Asaph, he has to come back in his mind to an outsized view of God. Look at verses 2 through 5 or uh, 16 to 19. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Pause there for a second. That's why corporate worship matters so much. And we need it weekly. Because you will get so far askew in your worldview unless you're regularly reorienting your mind to the things of god so then he says i discern their end truly you set them in slippery places you make them fall to ruin how they are destroyed in a moment swept away utterly by terrors my question for you do you have an outsized view of people or an outsized view of god Your answer to that question will resolve much of the baggage that you're carrying in this life. If you can't forgive, if there's this boiling rage, if you find yourself dwelling on thoughts of vengeance, you have grown a person to gigantic proportions in your own mind, and the only way to make them smaller is to allow God to get bigger. A.W. Tozer wrote these words in 1961. They are so applicable even today. He said, what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. It's always true. That's what your worldview is based upon. He's either incredibly small in your mind or incredibly big. Well, let's keep looking for more principles. So." We're going to make our way through the next part of the story. Now, we saw that David asked for Saul's spear in his water jug. Why? Well, the spear represents his weapon, and the water jug, his sustenance. So, symbolically, David has disarmed Saul, and he's taken life, water, from him. He takes these two things to set up a confrontation, and verses 13 through 16, he begins by confronting Abner, the general. He essentially says to him, you have not done your job. You're supposed to protect the king. And then he calls Abner and all of his men sons of death, meaning you should be court-martialed and executed for what you've done. Saul hears David's voice, and he calls out, "'Is that your voice, my son David?' And then David speaks directly to Saul. He said, "'Why does my Lord pursue after his servant? "'For what have I done? "'What evil is on my hands? "'Now therefore let my Lord the king "'hear the words of his servant, "'if it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me.' may he accept an offering, but if it is men, may they be cursed before the Lord, for they have driven me out this day that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord saying go serve other gods. Now David there saying go serve other gods is essentially saying by trying to eject me out of the land you're trying to tempt me to worship the gods of the surrounding nations. For him the greatest pain of fleeing in exile was the reality that he couldn't worship God in the corporate space that God had had assigned for worship that crushed David. If you read the Psalms, he pours out his heart about that. Verse 20, Now therefore, let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of the Lord, for the King of Israel has come out to seek a single flea like one who hunts a partridge in the mountains. Now the principle I see here is this, that your integrity is all you have look at the nature of this speech look at what david's saying here his argument is based solely on the fact that he has maintained integrity there are people making accusations about me those accusations are false because whether or not you've seen me i have never done any of those things your integrity is who you are when no one is looking and it is a form of protection for you think about a repeat offender can you say what david's saying here if you engage in the mudslinging with the person if they sling an arrow at you you sling another arrow back no proverbs 28 1 says this the wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as lions. I love that proverb, because if you have not maintained integrity, then when someone accuses you of something, you go within, you withdraw, you try to hide, because there might be some truth to that. What are they talking about? I've done a couple of things, and I don't want to be found out for them. But the righteous are bold as lions. They stand their ground. Look at David here. What is he doing? He's standing his ground. He's saying, I dare you to bring someone forward who can make an accusation against me. It'll be nothing substantive. It'll just be vicious gossip. You won't be able to corroborate stories because it didn't happen. I didn't do it. And he's not fooling himself here. If you go on to verse 21, Saul acknowledges the truth. He says, I have sinned. And then look what he does next. He invites David to come back home. Return, my son David, for I will no more do you harm because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. Now here, my friends, I want to suggest is a conundrum in the spiritual life. What do you do if someone has repeatedly hurt you and then they ask forgiveness and they ask for everything to go back to normal? Does everything just automatically go back to the former state of things? I mean, should David here just let Bygones, be bygones, and you know, put his arms around Saul and everyone walks back home singing kumbaya together? Is that how life works? Well, look at his response. David answered and said, Here is the spear, O king, let one of the young men come and take it, like I'm not moving an inch in that direction. You can come get the spear. Then he says, The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faith faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day at my sight, so may my life be precious, not in your sight, Saul, but in the sight of the Lord. And may he deliver me out of all tribulation. I'm not looking to you, Saul, for your protection. I have the Lord's protection. Then Saul said to David, blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. So David went his way and Saul returned to his place. Is it Christ-like? to forgive someone, yet still create and maintain new boundaries. Here's the principle. The next steps of relationship require situational wisdom. Situational wisdom, what is that? Well, it means what it sounds like. Not every situation is the same. Different situations require different Actions because there's different personalities involved, different dynamics that are involved in the situation. As you look at the Bible, the Bible doesn't tell us that you need to treat every situation the same way. It'd be nice, wouldn't it? It'd be really nice if I could just set it and forget it with all matters of life, and it was just clean and smooth, and we just moved on, and we sang kumbaya together. But the Scripture says It's situational. Look at Proverbs 26, for example. Solomon gives us an example of this. He's talking about how do you relate to the fool. Now look at verse four. He says, answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. The very next verse, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Which is it, Solomon? That's really confusing. You just told me to not, and then you're telling me to do it. Well, Solomon says it's situational. Sometimes, verse 4, when you engage with a fool and you engage in the argument, guess what? You start sounding a lot like them, like every Facebook argument ever, right? No, you're stupid. No, you're stupider. And Solomon's saying, how about we just allow one person to be a fool instead of creating two. But verse five is a balancing point. Sometimes the matter is so important that to say nothing would be unwise. Sometimes you have to speak up and you have to correct a person. It's situational. Think about this with reconciliation and forgiveness. This is true of forgiveness. Forgiveness is never situational. Peter asks Jesus, how many times should I forgive my brother? And Jesus says an unlimited number of times. In the scriptures, we're told you're never able to look at another person, hate them in your heart, judge them, and wish ill upon them for the rest of your life to basically wish they were dead or for them to be dead to you. That's a no-go in the Bible. But what about reconciliation? Well, when it comes to reconciliation, that is situational. For example, let's just get real here this morning. What are the next steps in a relationship if there has been abuse? Abuse. Well, it depends as the person walked through the process of repentance. And let me be clear, repentance is not just saying, I'm sorry one time. Those can be just words. There's steps. There's a process. Like, for example, it might involve anger management classes and accountability around the person and a, 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 a sustained amount of time where a person's demonstrated change behavior. You see what I'm saying here? It's situational. But let's go back now, because we're going to see one more principle. And we've got to ask the question about this forgiveness thing that Jesus talks about. How do you do that? Again, how many times must I forgive a person? And Jesus says, it's not conditional, it's unconditional. And I'm saying, that's really, really hard. How do you expect me to do that, Jesus? Because if someone's hurt me, It can instill a rage in my heart towards that person, a rage that burns hot, a rage that has made me feel powerful. So, how do I let go? How do I do what he's saying? Well, for this principle, we have to come back to the gospel. Now, there's one line that will always soften our hearts towards those who have hurt us. And the line is this I am a repeat offender too. I am a repeat offender too. Go back to Matthew 18 today as you look at the Bible, as you continue to meditate upon this scripture. That's exactly what Jesus is telling us in the scriptures. I am a repeat offender too. How many times have you offended Christ through your sins? Well, if I'm looking at my own life, if I'm being honest with myself, if I'm thinking not just about the sins that I am aware of, but also the sins that I'm unaware of, I believe the number is incalculable. I'm a repeat offender too. I've sinned against the Lord time and time again, yet this is the gospel. Christ loved me. Christ laid down his life for me. Christ chose to bring me into his family. There's no greater form of forgiveness than that. So if he has made me a recipient of that kind of forgiveness, then surely I need to learn how to forgive others too. I want to close our time with a prayer that was written by Richard J. Foster. Its title is A Prayer for Rage. Now, Foster wrote this poem on behalf of a woman that he was counseling who had suffered through childhood abuse, the worst form of childhood abuse. And she struggled. She felt the seething hatred in anger, and he just wanted to provide a prayer for her to help her work through the steps of letting go and releasing and trusting God with that situation. Let that be your prayer this morning if you're struggling with a repeat offender. And say you're not. Well, Scripture tells us to carry one another's burdens. So pray on behalf of another person you know. Let's bow our heads. Dear God, I come to you with an overwhelming anger, a bursting rage. This anger is like a cancer shut up in my bones, eating away at my soul. Today, O God, I acknowledge this rage. I do not suppress it or hide from it. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for accepting me, rage and all. God, I cannot separate my hatred for what was done for the person who did it. I despise the deed. I loathe the person who did the deed. My rage is my only revenge. But God, my rage destroys me too. I feel this seething anger searing my own soul. O Lord, my God, deliver me from the exile I would do to myself. I refuse to allow this evil to control me anymore. I will not be held in bondage to my hate any longer, but the strength to love, it is not mine. I need your enabling. Now in your greater power and with a trembling heart, I speak your word of forgiveness. May your healing light shine, O God, into every crack and crevice of my soul. Rage once made me feel strong, but now I receive your light and circle me with love. I have not forgotten what was done to me. I will never forget, but today I choose to live as your child of infinite worth.